welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Beth Macy's book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America, is a compelling account of the opioid epidemic in our country, profiling the 20-plus year history of the crisis as it emerged in her home state. Beginning in 2012, Beth began reporting on the epidemic as it landed in the suburbs of Roanoke. Five years later, she finished writing Dopesick and the story of how Appalachia became the canary in the coal mine for the opioid epidemic was told. Along the way, Beth grew close to a Tess Henry, a young mother in her 20s who was doing her best to recover from heroin addiction for her son. In November, Beth and her producer, Emily Martinez, released a podcast series that provides a graphic portrayal of Tess Henry's struggle to find recovery from heroin addiction in parts of Las Vegas that many people didn't even know existed. This five-part podcast series is titled, Finding Tess. It was like the Dementors in Harry Potter. It was like they just swarmed in and said, I want you, I want you, and I want you. This disease um, is the worst thing that can happen to somebody. I describe it sometimes as watching your loved one just slowly drown. I spoke with Emily Martinez from Audible Originals about how the series was produced. Beth had been following Tess's story for, uh, I think, two years at that point. And she had been recording her interviews with Tess on her iPhone, just for her own purposes, for her book, Dope Sick. And, um, you know, once Dope Sick came out, Beth and her agent approached Audible to do an Audible original. So Beth and her agent approached us to do an Audible original. And Beth uh, really wanted to tell Tess's story. So just focusing on Tess's addiction and her um, struggle to uh, get treatment and her mother's uh, journey to understand what happened to her daughter after her death while she was homeless, you know, living on the streets and, and prostituting in order to not be dope sick. So Beth came to us already with all of these recordings and a proposal and she had this whole plan for the story that we would sort of retrace Tess's steps uh, with her mother Patricia. So, you know, we have Tess telling her own story in her own words. We have those recordings. But then also we would follow Patricia's journey to understand what happened to Tess. So we went to um I went to Roanoke. I met Tess's parents, Patricia and, and Al, and, um, you know, friends and family that knew Tess, and I got a sense of where she came from. We did a bunch of interviews with people in the Roanoke community in Virginia, and um, other parents whose children's 
whose children suffered from addiction. Next, Beth introduces us to Tess Henry. You know, she was from the wealthiest suburb in in Roanoke, Virginia, the daughter of a, a surgeon and a hospital nurse. Family had a vacation home on Bald Head Island uh, in North Carolina. Kind of every advantage that you would think of when you think of suburban, wealthy medical professionals for parents, loving family. And yet Tess was uh, overprescribed opioids, two 30-day opioids at an urgent care center for a simple case of bronchitis um, back in, I think it was 2012. Um, she had taken a break from college. She was working at a very high-end restaurant and soon found herself being sick. She thought she was just sick again, but she told me she Googled her symptoms and said, holy crap, I'm addicted. I don't know how common it is. You know, it was hydrocodone uh, for sore throat pain and tussy caps. No, it was cough, I'm sorry. It was cough syrup with codeine for the cough and hydrocodone uh, in the form of something she called tussy caps, which I looked up and sure enough it was hydrocodone. And when she realized it was actually withdrawal that she was experiencing or dope sickness, uh, she found somebody, uh, a fellow waitress at her restaurant who could get her the pills on the black market. And then within a few months, hydrocodone got upscheduled and <clears throat> it became harder to get on the black market. And that's when the same drug dealer introduced her to heroin. In 2014, the DEA reclassified all drugs containing the opioid hydrocodone as a Schedule II controlled substance, making them much harder to get. As a result, the drug dealers found an influx of customers ready to make the switch to heroin. Initially, Tess had snorted the heroin, as she had done with the pills. But after three times of shooting the heroin up, she knew she'd never go back. It's not wow, my money was going towards it because it's just, it's the devil yeah. once you start. Um, Where did you shoot up? Marks right there. Yeah, but it's like a scar. Mm -hmm. It's from um, scar tissue. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it in the same spot. Are you left-handed? Um, no, I'm not, but that's the only vein oh. that I would really get. So you do it with your left hand? Mm -hmm. So about, let's say, a year after I met her, and let's say I had met with her maybe six times. I mean, the first time was like a three-hour interview. So these were long, long interviews. But, you know, shortly, a few months after meeting her, she was on the street. She was uh, estranged from her family at that point. Every now and then she would reach out to me. And then she was kind of couch surfing, living homeless. Uh, we learned she was prostituting. At one point she was missing. And, you know, there were posters up about her. And her recovery coach was, you know, doing everything they could to find her. She ended up in jail. Um, she ended up in a psych ward. And I would sort of check in with her. I mean, the last time I actually saw her in person, she had checked herself into uh, a psych ward um, at a hospital. And I went and visited her and took her books because she was going to be there for about a week. And she told me when it gets when it gets cold outside, I like to I like to come indoors, and that was kind of one of her coping mechanisms. She would present at the ER and say she was suicidal, which she may have been, and 
get some time off of the street. And by that point, we already knew she was prostituting. I think the last time I interviewed her um, was that night. And the hospital was around Halloween, and I had taken her some books. And I still, you know, being a reporter, I said, is it okay if I take notes? And she said, sure. And all they would let me take in was a pencil. And we had this sort of hopeful conversation. She looked terrific, to be honest. She wasn't at her lowest weight. She had been there a few days. She was in pretty good spirits. And the peer recovery coach that was with me was visiting her, uh, was trying to get her into a rehab in Asheville. But yet again, it was another rehab that didn't allow anybody that was on any medicine, not not even MAT, but not even any psychiatric medicines like SSRIs. When it came time for her to leave the the psych ward, she ends up basically out on the streets again because she knew she couldn't do it without it. Like so many others struggling to recover from opioid addiction, Tess found it next to impossible to find a sober home that accepted patients on medication-assisted treatment. In February of 2017 is when her family sent her to, to Las Vegas to Solutions, a rehab there that at the time wasn't allowing MIT, but then later did. Um, but she didn't do real well there. She ended up checking out and went to a smaller place, kind of like a sober living, those female only. And she liked that a lot better, but it also didn't allow MIT. And, um, but she spent the whole month there and did pretty well. And then when it was time for her to go back to like, uh, aftercare at Solutions, that's when she ends up reaching out to somebody who's using and dealing, and, and she disappears after a few days there. Beth shares the call she got from Tess's mom the day after Christmas. She had fallen so low and was living on the streets and prostituting and potentially involved in criminal drug gangs or prostitution rings that she was murdered on Christmas Eve of 2017, and when her mother called me the day after Christmas, they had identified her body in part because of a tattoo on on the back of her shoulder. Beth talks about what led her to develop this story about how Tess fell through the cracks of society. I would record our conversations in the car with her permission, of course, um, and a lot of what I did was drive her to NA meetings and back. And, and it was like 45 minutes to get there. And so, you know, we were together quite a long time. And um, and I would just kind of hear her story, ask her questions about literally how the opioid impact landed in Roanoke, Virginia, because she knew it better than I did. I mean, she knew it all. She, and she was right on everything she told me. But to have this opportunity, not just to write her story, but to hear it in her voice, and that was when it really became helpful to have extra ears. When Emily was listening to it, she was kind of hearing it new and in a way that I maybe hadn't. And I think that was helpful in terms of analyzing where Tess fell through the cracks and why and what exactly went wrong. Emily shares what they discovered uncovering this story on their trips to Las Vegas. So we went out to Las Vegas and Actually, the first thing that we did when we got there was we talked to the detectives who were investigating Tess's murder um, with Patricia. Um, we weren't allowed to record, but, you know, they allowed us in the room and, um, you know, we had a whole plan to sort of get an update, but then also to retrace her steps 
um, and to meet the people that she sort of met along the way as she was living on the streets. And a lot of those people are sort of in similar situations or they're recovering addicts, um, you know, former prostitutes. And a lot of them were really amazing women who are sort of on the front lines battling the crisis. Um, for example, uh, Donna Hefner, who's this amazing woman who led us into um, these tunnels beneath Las Vegas where a lot of homeless people live and a lot of the addicted community um, live. And we went down there with Donna and also a group of, um, of men who were who used to live down there as well. Here's a clip from Finding Tess, where Beth and Emily are introduced to the wash. This is one of the hardest populations to build a relationship with. Yeah. There's no amount of convincing anybody that, hey, I know it didn't work before, but I have a solution. Like, you've just got to get touch their heart. It starts with not really fully wanting to re-engage with a process that I felt had failed me. So, like, I don't go in here to convince anybody to leave. I go in here to let everybody know there's an option if the day ever comes that they want to. Paul guided us with a small flashlight into the pitch-black tunnels. He walked fearlessly and fast, like he was late for an appointment. I feel like it's important to have this experience because I'm going to show you, like, the dichotomy of this level of homelessness in a town that is fueled by money and excess and glamour and glitz. So we, we followed all of these people and they showed us a different side of Las Vegas that I certainly never knew existed and that probably most people who go to Vegas have no idea about. And even people who live there, um, I mean, it's really this underworld of, um, you know, a level of poverty that I've never seen. I mean, they are these train, it's a drainage system under Las Vegas. Um, and people live down there. It's, it's relatively clean and it spans the city, but you know, sometimes they will get washed out. Um, so if it rains, uh, people can get washed out and all of their stuff can get washed out and people have drowned and, and, and died down there. Um, so it's, it's actually very dangerous, but it's also what we heard is that a lot of them feel safer down there than they do above ground in Las Vegas because, you know, they're not being bothered or bullied by police. They're allowed to sort of exist um, down there and, and sort of hide. Beth spoke about what they learned on their visit to a rehab Tess spent time at. Well, we told them who we were and um, they said, okay, there was a corporate person in from Nashville who was sort of monitoring the interview and chiming in, and we were able to meet Tess's counselor. I mean, we talked to them for nearly two hours, and at the end of the interview, they um, refused to sign our uh, permissions form. So we weren't able to use that interview, but of course we were there and we were recording, which they knew we were, um, and we were very transparent about it. So I was able to describe with Emily's help kind of what happened and you know they seemed very sorry for what had happened to her although at the end of the interview it wasn't clear they even knew that she was the young woman who had been murdered and left in the dumpster which had been all over the Las Vegas news which that kind of surprised us and um, they told us the next day that they were going to change the policies 
um, and in honor of what had gone wrong with Tess. They were going to offer counseling on the weekend, especially during high-stress times. You might remember that Tess had checked herself out of there on Mother's Day weekend. She was really missing her son, whom she had lost custody of. Patricia wasn't even informed when Tess checked herself out. Oh, yeah, that's right. They said they were going to work on that and work on, like, she was just trying like heck to get home. The last text I got from her uh, sometime around December 20th, uh, said, I can't wait to be home. You know, her mother was just standing by, her granddad was standing by, ready to pay for the expensive last-minute plane ticket, and they were just, her mother had gotten her a ID, a DMV ID, which is an miracle in itself, without Tess being there, uh, and had sent it to her friend, Gerald, who received it, and then everybody was just waiting on Tess to pick it up. And she, she really intended to make it home. I mean, that was the last thing she said to me. We do say that Tess was killed. Um, and we went back and forth about how do we start this story, right? Do we sort of um, meet Tess and hear her story from the beginning and then reveal that she's murdered, you know, later on in the, in the series? Or do we reveal it at the top? And I think, you know, we made that decision together because, you know, I think ultimately this story is not about her death, and it's not a true crime story. It's not about the investigation. The, the story of how Tess was failed over and over again by the medical community, by um, treatment facilities, and the legal community, the legal community, um, you know, and, and in some ways, you know, how her family might have, um, you know, reacted differently and made different choices. And, and I think a big part of that is Patricia's story as well, right? I mean, she, you kind of hear her journey from the very beginning, trying to understand how to support her daughter, her daughter through her addiction. And what are the best, you know, the, how to, whether to, um, whether to give her tough love or, you know, sort of uh, put her foot down. She talks about, you know, she had a lot of pressure in her family. We should just let Tessie hit bottom. And Patricia agreed with that in the beginning. You know, if we just, you know, she'll get so tired of living on the street, she'll eventually, like, some miracle will happen and suddenly she'll wake up one day. And But what Pat now says is the bottom had a basement and the basement has a trap door. Too often, AA and NA are the only things that are available for people once they've fallen as low as Tess had fallen. And um, with the Medicaid expansion happening, you know, she had lost her Medicaid once she lost custody of her son, Ronan. Um, now, if that had happened, she would be able to get it because we have the expansion now. But we still have 14 states that haven't pa passed the Medicaid expansion. And all the research shows that that is the number one tool for getting uh, people, especially who are living uh, homeless and sort of off-grid, um, homeless underground, uh, doing sex work, really fighting for their very survival, not to be dope sick every single day and whatever that entails. Uh, Medicaid is really the best way to bring them into the system. Next, we talk about some of the takeaways from this story. I want them to take away empathy. Um, I want them to see just how this can start. Like urgent care, right? 
urgent care center for bronchitis. Um, not saying she was an angel, not saying she didn't break the law in her quest not to be dope sick, not saying that at all. But when you trace the trajectory back to that uh, place of being at an urgent care center because you have bronchitis, and this is where you end up, I mean, this is really the crime that, that these pharmaceutical companies have per- perpetrated against um, naive Americans that didn't know about this, right? And you see it over and over in the story and the still willingness not to admit they did anything wrong, which is so frustrating. Greg, I was speaking at uh, a private college in Grand Rapids, Michigan last week, a Catholic college, and Tess was Catholic, you might remember. Um, a nun came up to me afterwards, and she said, I'm a nurse, and I'm an administrator here at the college, and I want to thank you because your book and your podcast taught me empathy. She said, I thought I was a pretty progressive person till I learned this story, and I realized I didn't have the empathy that I thought I did. Emily Martinez shares what can be learned from Tessa's story. So her mother and her father they had different views about the, what was best for Tess. And um, in a lot of ways, the, the family was torn. And this is a conversation that millions of families around the country are having. And I, I think, you know, even though Tess was, um, she comes from a, you know, somewhat wealthy family, educated. The, her parents are, you know, medical professionals. Her mother, her mother is a nurse, her father is a surgeon. And, um, you know, but even this family, even though they had the means to support us um, and, and send her to rehab, to pay for rehab or to pay for her medications um, and to support her, even though they had the means, even for them, it was, it was not enough. We close today with a clip from the prologue of Finding Tess, an extraordinary podcast series from Beth Macy. She had flown to Las Vegas to get treatment for her heroin addiction at a rehab center that touted a 63% success rate according to its literature. As Tess wrote in her journal around that time, I am going to die if I keep living the way I am. 10 months later, her bludgeoned body was found wrapped in black plastic and hidden at the bottom of a dumpster. A man foraging for aluminum cans had discovered Tess. Her almond eye seemed to be staring directly at him. I just, I mean, it's so surreal. You know, you can talk about it, you can be here, and you can look in this nasty, dirty dumpster. I think that's where my beautiful daughter was laying naked, beaten. But it's surreal. Like, you just can't believe it. Because I'm coming up on a year, And that's when it really starts to hit home is when the time goes by and you realize, no, she really isn't coming back. This is real. She's not coming back. It would take police nearly 48 hours to identify Tess, partly through her tattoos, a tree of life on her shoulder, and another one on her side that said, God, forgive me my sins. The scene was a perfect metaphor for America's response to its opioid crisis. The girl next door with the shy smile and the poetry collection discarded among the trash. 
Tessa's story was so shocking and so hard to fathom that it would take months before we could see her murder for what it really was, medical and societal abandonment. We've been joined today by best-selling author of Dope Sick, Beth Macy, and Audible Originals podcast producer, Emily Martinez, who introduced us to their five-part podcast series titled Finding Tess, a graphic look at the last days of a young mother's life as she attempts to find recovery from heroin addiction on the streets of Las Vegas. If you get a chance, pick up this podcast. It's pretty amazing. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 